Welcome to the Executive Security Podcast, where we talk to CISOs and other leaders in the cybersecurity space about their careers in this industry, specifically how to get into the industry, how to grow your career, how careers in this space are changing. My name is Gene Fay, and I'm the CEO of API security company ThreadX and the host of the Executive Security Podcast. Today, we're joined by James Carter, who is an experienced chief security officer, researcher, and developer and leader in the security space. He has over 26 years of experience working in the corporate world, consulting public and private companies across varying industries, from Fortune 500 to the US government. Currently, he is CISO Chief Security Officer at Logarithm and has also recently added leadership positions at a world-renowned health facility in Mandiant. James was also in the Air Force. Welcome, James. Yeah, Gene, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, thank you for your service. We appreciate it very much. You're welcome. Awesome. So, uh, James, why don't you start a little bit about talking about your current company, Logarithm, and uh, your role as the chief security officer? Yeah, happy to. I've been at Logarithm now for seven years, actually, this month. So, Wow, congratulations. uh, Thank you. I'd like to call it 3x longer than most CISOs are at any one one location. So um, been here seven years. And for those that don't know, Logarithm is a Colorado-founded cybersecurity company uh, commonly associated with what they call the security information and event management space, or SIM. But however, I think that kind of puts us in a, in a little bit of a box uh, whenever we, when you think about logarithm on the platform and the software we develop for our customers, it's really an all-encompassing security operations platform. So it handles more than just what traditional SIM or security uh, information event management uh, actually does. So, and probably my role uh, as it relates to this is a little multifaceted. It's probably unique. I, I don't think that there's many... CISOs that have the responsibilities that I do uh, here, but um, you know I have the chief security officer role, which means I'm in charge of physical and information security. So um, a combination they, of both there. So you've got you got both sides of that. That's really I do cool. actually, and we're we're opening up a new warehouse facility in a new uh, office down in Broomfield, Colorado. So I'm in the midst of making sure all the cameras and badge systems and everything else are all taken care of. So. But yeah, I have both. Um, the data protection officer for the company, so for the you know GDPR uh, sort of privacy component yeah. and PII, I am the data protection officer. I'm the de facto chief risk officer. I oversee an R&D group of threat researchers, compliance researchers, operational technology and risk researchers. I partner with our CMO uh, in lead analyst relations. So I, I deal with Gartners and Forsters of the world. And uh, I'm the primary PR voice for the company, uh, public relations voice. And if you look at anything that we're mentioning, quoted in or anything like that, usually it, it comes from me. Uh, I also lead a big component of our M&A. And I think that's, that's something that's, that's interesting as well. When you think about it, us being in the security space, what better you know, sort of leader or person to evaluate other security technologies than a customer. So yeah. um, it's all very interesting. And, and if that wasn't unlike most CISOs, uh, I also do a lot of marketing and sales activities as well. So I'm a strong voice for our product management org in developing our next generation of products. So it's a wide role. I've got a lot, I wear a lot of hats, as they say. But, you know, when I look at, you know, the work that we do, we've set the bar as a security company and we need to be, you know, we need to meet these expectations that our customers and other people have of us as a security company. The awesome part about it is when we do that, 
it actually helps our companies generate sales and everything like that. So I actually have been able to sort of convert the view of security uh, as a from a cost center, meaning that you know you're just going to pay a bunch of dollars and it's kind of going into a what if something happens bucket, you know, rainy day kind of bucket, but uh, turn it from that into an actual profit center where we can show lead generation, viewership on blogs and and other sort of just content that we're coming out with. So it's unique. I think you will probably may see some of this in other CISOs and other security organizations, but it's pretty rare to have all that responsibility. Yeah. And your your father to some young kids. So I know you never sleep with all those responsibilities. I think it's a uh pretty uh, extensive. And I think that says a lot to the role of a chief security officer or chief information security officer, CISO that we talk a lot about. It can be very expansive. And uh, for those that aren't familiar with Logarithm, uh, it's a tier one uh, cybersecurity vendor out there in the marketplace. I've had the pleasure of competing against them uh, very early in my career. I, I worked for another SIM provider and I've just been astounded with the growth that uh, the company's had over the last 16, 17 years. A lot to be proud of, for sure. And I have the pleasure on my board of having Andy Grolneck, who is the former CEO of Logarithm. So I've got some great insights into the journey that you guys had. So congratulations on the continued success and specifically on your role and longevity of your role. For those that aren't familiar with, a typical CISO is about 18 to 24 months. So seven years is a, is a lifetime in that role. So it says a lot to all the things that you're doing for the company, but also equally how much you enjoy the company and the challenges they give you and then the wide array and diversity of, of roles and responsibilities. It sounds exciting. It is. It is. It can be tiring with the family life yeah. balance, but it's definitely <laughs> exciting. And I've seen a lot of change and transition over the the seven years. And, you know, you mentioned Andy, I'm actually going to have you having lunch with him here next week, but awesome guy, amazing guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was there since the beginning, right? It's really yeah. after the founders were there. Then Andy came in and did a great job and, and they built the company into something that is pretty outstanding. I think we're this past year, this year, we're going to be 10 years in a row, the Gartner upper right, you know, yeah. magic quadrant, yeah. uh, which is, you know, for those that don't know that space, it's real, where they rate other competitors of ours and ours, these quadrants and upper right means that we've been a leader in this space for nearly a decade now. And so, you know, that's a long run. So we're, we're very proud of that. Absolutely. A lot to be proud of. So congratulations on all of that. So as you think about uh, cybersecurity, what do you think the biggest misconceptions are about a career in cybersecurity? Yeah. You know, I think one of the big misconceptions is that oftentimes people think they have to have some level or some years of experience just to break into the cybersecurity field. And, you know, I used to say that, you know, there's a lot of more specialization within IT than there were in security back then. Whenever I first got into the space, it was just kind of like this blanket thing. But now the specializations are starting to occur here too. And so you don't have to be the person who knows everything anymore. You can kind of focus in on some key areas. But I think I think just the misconception that you have to have experience in order to land a cybersecurity job is, is a misconception. And part of that's valid. And in the cybersecurity industry, we should probably be ashamed that we've made that misconception a reality. If you've read any job descriptions or anything like that, I mean, we're all looking for unicorns and there just aren't uh, unicorns out there. But if you show a tremendous passion for security and an aptitude, 
you shouldn't have any issues breaking into this career field. And, you know, one of the stories I have is I actually once hired a middle school history teacher as a malware analyst when I was at Mandiant. And he demonstrated the aptitude. He was reverse engineering malware like at night uh, while he was grading papers on the side for his class. And uh, that guy now is the co-founder of his own offensive security firm. But he literally was a history teacher that just had a passion and aptitude for malware reverse engineering and exploitation and doing things like that end up being a phenomenal hire for us. And so I've got another friend of mine uh, here locally, uh, Rob Reck, Chief Trust Officer at Red Canary. I believe he's a history major too, which is what his degree is in. And so just don't think that, you know, as long as you have a passion and aptitude, you should have no problem breaking into the career field, despite all the unicorn job postings that are out there from every single company as it relates to security. Yeah, I totally agree with you, James. And uh, we just recently posted a tier one SOC position. And when we stated that there was no experience required, we got 2,400 applicants. So I think that that goes to, there is a lot of interest, but we as providers of these jobs have to change the way we, we talk about them because we have to start training, right? Millions of jobs open today. We're all willing to train, but we start with the perfectly said unicorn. And then when we get frustrated, either because of the cost of that person, which they deserve every penny of it, or just the inability to find them, even if you have an unlimited budget, and we, we have to be able to bring more people into the field. Totally agree on that side. And I would take passion and aptitude over any certification, degree, anything like that. You know, it's interesting, even even those folks that have the years of experience, oftentimes they're so renowned or whatever the case is and, and so skilled. You're right. You have a hard time reeling them in. And when you do, you have a hard time keeping them. And the cost is astronomical. And oftentimes I don't see the work output that they're putting in later in their careers, maybe as they did at the beginning of their career yeah. to establish that name. Yeah. So now you're now you're measuring like, do I, I'm paying a premium for all this experience, but yet maybe the output isn't what it, what it, what yeah. it needs to be. So I would take aptitude and passion and yeah. drive any day of the week. Absolutely. And those are others. Those are skills we can't teach people. Either you get excited about it, you get passionate, you get curious about something or you don't. Uh, and I know James, cause you and I've been in the field for a long time uh, that we do have that passion. And, and we look for that when we hire people because we can't, teach that we've made that mistake in the past and it just doesn't happen so love to go to this next question about how you got into cybersecurity and and did your military background in the air force have an influence or directly uh help you to get into this field yeah this is actually a, a interesting story i kind of lucked into the cybersecurity field to be completely honest you didn't have a grand plan. You didn't start saying, hey, I'm 21. I want to be a CISO someday, you know? Or... No, no, I don't think CISOs even existed. Exactly, when right. I started. And if they did, they were just like some security person, one role in a company type deal. But uh, before joining the military, I remember I wanted to be in special forces. And so I wanted to be like a, what they call in the Air Force, a combat controller or a pararescue man. You know, combat controllers, for those that don't know, they go out. And they basically establish like the airfield, like in a war zone, and they clear the area, they establish the airfield, they establish the air traffic control. And so that way we can fly, Air Force can fly planes in and out safely in a battlefield or, or war zone. And the pararescue men are the ones that drop out of planes and helicopters and going in. And they're basically, in essence, paramedics or healthcare folks 
that are out, you know, pulling people off the battlefield or, or whatever the case is. And so I wanted to be in special forces. And my dad, I remember talking to him, he said, what are you going to do if you get out of the military after four years? And my dad's a 20 year army retired enlisted guy. He goes, are you going to put on your job application or your resume that you're an expert in hand-to-hand combat or that you know how to kill people a certain way? Uh, he goes, that's not going to get you really the, the jobs that you want. So he goes, how about you do something in computers? You know, and it's kind of funny now you have all these like different things. But back then it was just like, all right, how about you do something in computers, like as a general term? And so I did choose a computer-oriented sort of career field in the Air Force when I first got in. And so that was how I lucked into just doing the right thing there. And then once I got in, I wanted to be a network engineer. And so I, you know, went down the CCIE track. I, I you know, I passed a number of tests. I had my MCSE and NT 4.0. And so I, I, but I wanted to be a network engineer mostly and primarily because I saw that as like, if it, someone can't access their mailbox or whatever it is, it's one person. But if an entire building or facility or network segment goes down, it's, it's kind of like a larger piece of destruction, if you will, uh, which, which had me sort of uh, really interested in that. But back then security fell into the networking team. And so yeah, I walked absolutely. in and so they... They put me on. I managed Sidewinder firewalls for those that may remember. I think they became Raptors and then something else later on in life. That's early. Those are early yes. days. Yeah. I, I ran the very first version of Tripwire. I built these network profilers and proxies to catch people browsing bad sites and doing a bunch of different things like that. And so it was actually pretty cool to be able to be a, like monitor and catch bad people and then and then do something about it to right the situation. So that's unlike anything else in, I think, in tech that you could experience. So based on that, I sort of caught the bug then. And, uh, you know, I did some exploit development on the side when I was in in the Air Force and did a few different things. So, but uh, there was a cool factor to it. You know, there's also like this firefighting piece of it where, you know, you're coming to the rescue because something major happened. And that's for me is like an exciting uh, aspect of it, kind of being in the middle of the fire. So the military really steered me into that. And it was luckily for me, it was like so early on where security was just starting to become a thing. This is the mid nineties we're talking about. And so I got in and I feel like at the front end of this entire movement that we see today. It is amazing. And uh, again, thank you for your service. And I think you hit on many, many things that when I've talked with other people that come from a military background, that firefight, that cat and mouse, that, that, that you learned some of that aspect, quite a bit of that aspect in having your military background directly applies here, being able to work within teams and that leadership and being a part of a team, understanding your role, all those things play into really well things that are uh, ingrained in military people that directly apply into cybersecurity. I think there's a lot of crossover. So I'm always encouraging people that have a military background, even if they don't have an associate's yet or a bachelor's degree and they, they want to try to investigate this side of it, uh, I think there's there's a lot of things that apply directly to what we're doing over on this side of things for sure. Yeah. And if you think about it, the military gave me four years of experience. You know, I came in as like this 18-year-old kid and they said, go have at it. We'll train you, but go have at it. And I, I literally like converted an entire base uh, network infrastructure. I did a uh, Novell to Microsoft Windows migration. Uh, I did all these different like things and I was like 18, 19 years old. And it's just, I don't know where else you're going to get that type of experience. So I fully agree with you. And, you know, I truly 
uh, love the fact that I, I came that path through the Air Force, but it truly gave me four years of hands-on experience. When I left the Air Force, I had a number of job offers. I had no degree. I had uh, almost an associate's degree worth of credits, but I, I landed, I think my starting job was like $75,000 a year and I'm 21 years old or something like that in this in this brand new area called security. Well, I think back to the transition also from the mid nineties, there were probably a hundred cybersecurity companies on its tiptoes and you had some big companies that still exist today. And then smaller companies that one of my was a part of network intelligence. But today there are 6,000 funded cybersecurity companies. So when we talk about this from a career perspective, today you're talking to two people that work on the vendor side. So both James and I provide technology to our customers and help our customers protect them, themselves. But so there's 6,000 companies just doing that, never mind all the companies in the world that need cybersecurity expertise. And that's why there is such a dearth of, of opportunity uh, because there, there's just endless opportunities in terms of what we need for people in the cybersecurity industry. So I guess, you know, you've been at it now a while. You know, why should somebody coming out of the military or coming out of college, why should they consider a career in cybersecurity? I touched on some of that. I mean, it's the coolest, most exciting tech career one can have. And so now the firefighting can't get a little tiring after a while. But like, you know, I actually got to monitor and catch bad guys. I got to have them put in jail. I did when I was at Mandy and I did a ton of work with FBI and I ran our programs to help the FBI with cyber intrusion investigations, both criminal and nation state. And so like literally I got to help them prosecute and put bad folks in jail from a cyber perspective. And you're not doing that in regular old IT or anything like that. So it's the coolest career field in tech in my in my opinion. And, and you know, I, I talked talk to you about wanting to go into special forces uh, before I joined the military. And it kind of gives me a little bit of that feel. Like I feel like that yeah. type of unit and it's such a small, still such a small sort of career field. It's, you know, fairly new still. And so everybody knows everybody. And so it's very tight knit as well. And so that part is a cool factor aspect of it. And, you know, the job security aspect, as long as there are computers, there's going to be computer intrusions and there's always going to be a need for security people. So there's that aspect and it can be highly lucrative. I mean, you know, I've got a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a director of IT and, uh, you know, I convinced him and he wanted to go into security. He did that. And he goes, man, the first security gig ever, I was already making more money than my old director of IT role that I had. And so okay. it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's a pretty lucrative field because it's just because it's kind of smaller. There's not enough skilled resources yet built into it, et cetera. So the price has, has shot up for those. And when you get in early, which it's still good right now, still fairly early in this space. But when you get in early, I mean, my first deputy CISO gig, I was 32 years old. And then uh, I landed my first full CISO gig at the age of 34. Wow. So so I, I've been the youngest member of the exec teams for, you know, almost a decade now. Yeah. But, you know, you got in early, you got to learn all these skills, you got thrown into the fire. Right. Uh, it's cool and exciting. And there's tons of career advancement and job security and all the stuff to take care of your family that you would ever want. And you can make a tremendous influence and impact still on this just because of, of where it is today. And so 
for all those reasons, I think everybody should go into cybersecurity. If, you know, if I, if I could teach my five-year-old, you know, he could tell you about password complexity. He could tell you about some of these different things now because I'm like trying to drive some of that into him. Just right. It's, it's going to be great even when he turns 18, 21, 22, whatever the case is. Yeah, no, it, it's, you hit on so many great points there. I, I think about my experience at White Ops. Now it's called Human. I had nothing to do with it, but watching the FBI work closely with our company to ultimately take down some actors in, in the bot space was really interesting. And to your point, the, the overall career, sometimes we, we are embarrassed to admit that uh, people are well paid in this industry, but it's, it is what uh, drives me to encourage everybody to join it. Very few people that I've convinced have said, oh, man, I, I would rather sell hardware. Or I'd rather go sell some SaaS services. People that get involved here, you are making a difference. It matters what we do, whether it be on the vendor side or, or, or on the uh, company side. It is a fun, dynamic, diverse environment of different types of things you're going to deal with day in and day out. So I, I totally agree with you. So, so I guess then the natural ex, uh, question then, James, is, you know, how does one get started that doesn't have experience today? What, what are the groups or the resources or the, the websites you'd encourage people to kind of check out so they can start to join our journey, join the fight? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you know, you bring up a good point there of the community itself. You know, there's, you know, organizations like ISSA and things like that, that, you know, they have chapters in, in every single state. There's a community of, you know, OWASP, which I'll go into those acronyms later, and a few other groups like that, Cloud Security Alliance. There are things that kind of can get you into the community. And I think part of it is about who you know. If you've got the aptitude and passion, as we discussed earlier, now you just got to figure out who to know to get in front of someone to be able to showcase that. And so I think aptitude and passion, you got to have it. And don't just say you're passionate. I actually remember an interview that I had where someone told me like, oh, I'm really passionate about security. And I said, okay, well, what have you done? You know, you don't get to do that as a history teacher, as an example. What have you done to showcase that? And they're just like, I said, what have you read? What have you looked at? The other blogs or Twitter, folks on Twitter yeah. that you follow, what is it that you do to demonstrate that passion? They had no answers. Yeah. And I was just like, you can't just say you're passionate about something. You yeah. have to have something sort of demonstrable yeah. examples of you actually being passionate about this. So you combine that with the community involvement and Look, you know, it's such a small community. If you're brand new, you go to one of these chapter meetings or whatever the case is, they will put their arms around you and welcome you in and start. They want to mentor and train and, and do those types of things. And so you can get a lot from that. And so absolute passion and then getting involved in the community, I think is they're all critical. And, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, I take aptitude and passion and the outgoing nature of being involved in the community just because it takes a little something to go out and you know, within a group of people. It's hard, right? I, I, yeah, I, I take that any day of the week, like I said, over a cert or a degree or anything like that. So, mm. you know, I, I gave I, I gave both examples, the history teacher example, and then my, my director of IT example, but all my director of IT friend did, he didn't have anything in security, never touched it, never got into it. He's actually, he's heard of it, but it wasn't like a, a thing. I had him take a 16 week program at the University of Minnesota it's a cybersecurity certificate program. He got his first security job as a program manager for security 
uh, before he even finished the 16 week program. And so that's another aspect too, is that there's a lot of these, like, you don't have to have a four-year degree in cybersecurity from somewhere, but the certificate programs and things like that, that some of the universities offer is a great way to get in because then you also can leverage their network. So you kind of get the best of both worlds there. And uh, lo and behold, it was a a Minnesota-based company that uh, had partnerships with the University of Minnesota. So they always scooped up talent out of the cybersecurity certificate program. So so that's another way to get started as well, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think those are all great guidance. And I I bucket it all under, you've got to put yourself out there. So I think some of our people that are uh, more introverted hear what we talk about on this podcast in terms of putting yourself out there. And I want to assure people like you're going to be around like-minded people. They're not going to be a bunch of, you know, necessarily type A extroverts, you know, kind of overwhelming. And there's a lot of introverted people that understand that to get into this industry, they got to put themselves out. And I think you'll find whether it's a B side or some of these other, other meetups, if you put yourself out there, you're going to find yourself in a community of people that are welcoming. You got to be, can't be a jerk. Uh, you got to be willing to, to be uncomfortable, being vulnerable. And then to your point, passion, uh, curiosity, enthusiasm to learn. And the world is, you know, potentially the, you know, your oyster in this particular opportunity. Whereas other, you know, if you're trying to become an M&A banker, it's a closed community. And if you don't go to the right school and know the right people, it's nearly impossible to start your career. It's the polar opposite in cybersecurity, where we are looking for people in all walks of life that have those underlying capabilities, which is so perfectly said. So I totally agree with you. So so I'd love to move to our last question, although I could talk with you for hours, James. I I love the, the passion that you bring to this industry but what's the best advice you were given by a mentor, boss, or coworker? This one was, you know, I thought long and hard about this and, you know, I want to give credit where credit's due, but the simplest piece of advice I ever got was just show up. Mm. Most people struggle with showing up. This goes out to being vulnerable, putting yourself out there, but just be responsive, get engaged and, you know, if someone sends you an email and asks for something, you can deliver it for four days respond back and say, I can't deliver for four days, but I'll be, I'll deliver it here. And, uh, you know, where this was, you know, kind of came full circle is, you know, obviously I spent six years at Mandy and I was employee 53 there. I leave a couple of years later, I get Kevin to speak at a private equity security event. And, uh, I was, you know, meeting with him beforehand and for, for a coffee. And, uh, I asked him how things were going. He said, James, it's getting harder and harder to get people that are just willing to show up. Because we used to pride ourselves on being there and answering the bell every time first, be the first one to answer that bell every time. And he goes, and that's getting harder and harder to find, you know, as you grow to find those types of of folks. So it could be, you know, showing up could mean answering emails, could be returning phone calls, could be responding to text messages, setting expectations, but it's also got to be counted on to jump into the fire and be willing to get into that fire. And so and then ultimately being in integrity, like do what you said you were going to do by when you said you were going to do it. And so that just show up aspect of things really resonated. Another, as you could tell, my, my career kind of took off at Mandian and, yeah. uh, and, I, and, I, and I owe, owe a lot to that. Yeah, yeah. To that group. And so uh, I had another boss. His name was Steve Serdu. Now he sits on boards and everything else. And he's, you know, he, he made quite a bit of money on the Mandian Fire ID, the first deal. 
before they they yeah. then went you know then had a second deal taking private now that now they've got a, another deal with Google yeah um, you know he really helped me sort of go through a transformation from being like this what I thought I was a rock star individual contributor lo and behold he made me realize I'm maybe not as big of a rock star as, as I claim or thought I was but how to go from that individual contributor only worrying about myself and my delivery and my work products and what I do to just being like this leader of leaders and he learned to push me he pushed me to learn how to empower and scale based on you know how, what you do with your teams and your people that work with you he was very regimented and structured everything was buttoned down he was all about doing the right thing every time he was first in the office he was last to go home he lived the furthest away still did that you know we joked we actually had a wiki page for him when i was at mandian so we joked that he was this robot the wiki page was about we called it surduisms and but so i could probably take that wiki page give it to Eugene and that entire wiki page, you could probably glean the best advice I ever got from a mentor, but he really, he really taught us how to be professionals. And if you look at all the folks that have come and left under his watch, I mean, he he treated us all the very same way and wanted us to be the best professionals we could possibly be. And all of us have done extremely well since we left. Uh, And so we owe a lot. Uh, There's a lot of us that owe, uh, give him a lot of credit for what he taught us and, you know, how to show up, how to be professional. I mean, when I first joined the company at Mandiant, he handed me like a Stephen Covey book on writing or something like that. Like that was like, he's like, you will look, you will be a good writer. And I remember my first reports, he just, I mean, they were so red and messy. Like he just cut them up. And then now there's actually one of the SANS instructors, Phil Hagen is the guy's name. He teaches the, you know, defense forensics incident response classes. And during the reporting section of one of the classes, he actually worked for us when I was at Mandia and he references me and how like my reporting, I got so like focused on it, like, like, you know, passive voice, active voice, this sentence too long. I could literally look at a paper and tell that one's a, you know, a font of eight and one's a font of nine, or there's an, there's an additional, like, you know, one tenth of an inch space between this and this. And I remember he just like, why did we have to be so perfect? I'm like, well, if this goes to court, yeah. they're going to pick this apart. And yeah. this is your, this is your only lead behind. And so, but that report writing sort of ability is came directly from him. And, and years later, when I became deputy CISO, I said, hey, I told the CISO, I said, we need someone that knows operations and service delivery and things like that. So we brought him in as a consultant. And it was the best feeling in the world when I got to review his work and give him the critique and feedback <laughs> and, and redline it. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, I took uh, so quite uh, a bit of joy in doing that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, that guy taught me how to be a professional. No, I think the whole, for those that uh, aren't familiar with Mandian and Kevin Mandiant, uh, the CEO, uh, it's now becoming part of Google, but it's a great story. And obviously, you know, many great leaders like James have been created because of that company. So another plug for uh, another company that when people are looking for an opportunity, that's tier one, a tier one opportunity to see some of the brightest minds in cybersecurity work together. And it's, it's a great story and, and it will continue now under Google for sure. Yeah. That's what we have for today. Thank you for listening. And thank you, James, for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate you sharing your insights and your career. It's super helpful. And I know everybody got a a lot out of it. So thank you for that. Please join us next month for another episode of the Executive Security Podcast. Mm -hmm.